Hello there, I'm K-Ball and welcome to Human Skills, where I interview tech industry leaders about all the non-technical skills that go into success in the tech industry. Sean Wang, also known as Swix, is best known for evangelizing the Learn in Public movement and for his developer relations and dev tools work at companies like Netlify, Temporal, and Airbyte. He's a ridiculously prolific writer and speaker, hosts a number of online tech communities, and published the book The Coding Career Handbook for junior to senior developers. In this interview, Swix and I covered a wide range of topics, from how to optimize your rate of learning to personal productivity, and even closing with a brief diversion into his most recent topic of interest, AI. But the theme that ran through this conversation more than anything else was one of leverage, how to achieve personal leverage through code and content, recognizing it when one of your specialties has become higher leverage than others, and even how to apply an investor's mindset to choosing the code you write and problems you solve for highest impact. Please enjoy this interview with Sean Wang. All right, Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Cable, thanks for having me. This is uh, exciting. We're talking yeah. um, career stuff. Career stuff. All of those messy things that uh, maybe behave a little bit more fuzzily than your computer talking to you. Though these days with the stuff you're working on in, in AI, it feels pretty uh, pretty fluid as well. Yeah, I, I kind of view that as just an extension of the random walk that I've been taking in life anyway. Um, and I've always viewed myself as a fast learner rather than a uh, specialist in any one thing. Um, so this is just, and this is hopefully the final iteration of that. I, I do think that there's certain qualities to this adventure that makes it more of an end game than any of the others I've done before. I'd love to dive into that learning aspect because I think, you know, our industry changes so fast and it continues to speed up uh, that, you know, pace of learning, being able to constantly learn is extremely valuable. So do you have particular strategies that you, for how you approach learning or tactics that you found to be effective for you? Yeah, um, I have a, I don't have them formally laid out. I guess I have them formally laid out because uh, I wrote a book three years ago where I specifically had you know, a third of the book dedicated to career strategy, tech strategy, business strategy, that kind of stuff. And I think developers pride themselves very much on writing clean code or writing nicely architected code, uh, but should think a lot about also where they place themselves strategically in companies and in uh, sectors which are in line with their interests, but also the, the, the general economic environment. Um, so I can go into any of those. Um, you know, the, the, the meta strategy is really, that you want to have a higher algorithm of learning than everyone else, because we all get the same 40, 50 years of productive life and, and we only get one run at it. Um, so if you think about the big O algorithm, I have a equivalent that I call the big L algorithm, which is um, you know, how do you progress in, your, in terms of your skills and expertise as a function of the number of years of experience? Uh, a, a lot of people will have the same year of experience repeated 10 times for, for 10 years, and others will really stretch themselves every single year uh, and be 10x the person uh, that didn't really push themselves uh, by the end of that 10 years. So I always think about like, what is the difference between constant uh, big L and then linear big L, quadratic big L and, and, and everything in between. Uh, and so the, the thing I'm known for is learning in public because you get to learn with others correcting you and, and supporting you along your journey. And I found that that is not an altruistic thing. That is actually genuinely the fastest way to learn. Yeah, let's dive into learning in public a little bit. So can you break down what that means and how you go about doing it? 
<laughs> sure. It's actually been a while since I've been asked this question, so uh, it's uh, useful to to refresh it. Um, so learning in public is a philosophy that uh, I did not invent. Um, it is a way to reset your mentality um, that you have to be an authority on, on, on the topic to write about it, is to reset uh, everything that you might have learned from your years of formal schooling, where everything was zero sum. Um, you competed with your friends for the best uh, exam scores, for the best jobs, with the best uh, you know, colleges. Um, and it switches the mindset to the tech industry where it's fundamentally positive sum. We are encouraged to open source our code. We're encouraged to share uh, our secrets during conferences, conference talks. And we even live stream our outages sometimes if, if you have looked at uh, the way that GitLab handle, handles their outages. And it might feel embarrassing, um, and sometimes it is extremely embarrassing. But one thing you're guaranteed to do is learn from your mistakes and to learn faster than you would if you kept it to yourself because there are people out there who are also in the same boat. You have people who know more than you, people who know less than you, uh, but all of us improve because we're in a fundamentally immature and young industry still. Uh, software engineering is still, I don't know how you count it, 30, 40, 50 years old. Um, and it is nowhere near as mature as physics or, uh, or philosophy. Um, so I think there's a lot of wide open space and therefore the learning and public strategy works in those kinds of areas. That makes sense. So essentially, instead of holding your knowledge to yourself as you come out with it, you put it out into the world. Yeah. I also like it as a form of uh, proof of work, uh, not in the cryptocurrency sense, but uh, I think the, the philosophy stands that people can authentically see you, see you grow in your expertise over time. And that is actually better than any fake LinkedIn endorsement saying that you know a thing. Um, because it's much better to have to people like to follow along their stories. And if, if they see that you have a high trajectory of growth, they can, and if they see that you know how to admit your mistakes and they, they see that you respond to feedback, they're much more likely to want to work with you in whatever capacity than a cold, lifeless resume or LinkedIn profile. So I, I just really like that it builds a living relationship with the people that are also interested in the same things that you are. Um, notice I don't say anything about being a celebrity. I don't say anything about building a, a following in order to turn into a creator and then uh, you know, sell like subscriptions or live stream on Twitch or whatever. Uh, that's not the life I'm advocating. I think you want to figure out what it is you're interested in and be known to the people that want to work with you uh, so that you have the opportunities that you want. End of story. So let's break it down into what exactly would someone do? Say they're they're wanting to learn a new technology. Maybe they're learning generative AI and they want to learn in public. What does that mean in terms of like, are they writing blog posts? Are they producing? Like what, what actually comes out of this? Yeah, yeah. I think everyone has their own modality that they are... Uh, bias towards. So I'm definitely a writer. Um, I, I have a face for radio. I, I have a voice for writing, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> so, so, uh, but others, they, they do do well on YouTube. They do do well on podcasts or whatever. And, uh, and some others, they do well in private communities. Uh, so I, I, for example, in, in the early AI days, and this is sort of early pandemic days in 2020, a bunch of people got together and 
looked at GPT-3 and they were like, oh, OpenAI is sitting on all these secrets. Like we want to have our own version of it. And they formed Eleuther AI, which is the open source, uh, collect, c c the open source, oh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the word, uh, collective, the open, uh, oh, so I'll, I'll rewind. Using like open so, collective type. So yeah, they, were, they did not use Open Collective. I'm just saying that they are, uh, so a bunch of people got together on a Discord and they looked at GPT-3 and they wanted to replicate it because they felt that too much power is being concentrated in OpenAI. And so they just taught themselves how to make a large language model from scratch. Every single piece of it was done from scratch by a group of volunteers. And that was how they created GPT-J and GPT-Neo. Um, and that's fantastic. It, it is a precursor to stable diffusion. It is the precursor to open assistance and all the other open source uh, efforts that are out today. It's, it's, it just happened as a result of a bunch of people who got to, to, together and decided to learn together in public. Got it. So instead of, say, going off and just reading papers on their own, they were talking about them together. They were trying things together, pushing code together, all those pieces. Nice. Yeah. Um, and and I, I did I did similar, I mean, for my own journey, I guess I did a similar thing, right? Like as someone who doesn't have a PhD in the, in the topic, but was uh, interested in, in the topic for a long time and then seeing that inflection and seeing that, okay, this is the time to really get serious about it. I started small, you know, I had, I still had my day job and, and I just wrote up some notes that I, uh, that I collected for myself. And then I wrote more notes and more notes and more notes. And uh, that was six months ago. And today I'm working full time on it. Um, I, I know a lot of the top names in this space. Um, I have my own base of knowledge that people are starting to refer to me as uh, somewhat of an authority on, even though I don't present myself as an authority. All I've done is I can demonstrate to people I have done the work. You, they, they, you can't, they, you know, they can take everything else away from me. Everything else is just a label, but I can prove that I've done the work. Yeah. I like that dual purpose, right? You're learning faster by doing it in public, but you're also showing your pathway. You're, you're providing a track record. Are there other approaches or tactics that you use to help increase your big L trajectory? Um, yeah. And some of that is not as available to others as it is, um, to me. Um, so some of that, uh, so yes, there are others tactics, right? So I have a uh, post that I call the big L notation. If people want to look it up, they can see how much I, how crazy I went into uh, the conception of big L notation. So one is you want to reflect on um, the lessons that you've learned and to not repeat mistakes. Most people are <clears throat> not one trick ponies. So that's an L of one. They're just constantly one, learn one thing and then they repeat it for the rest of their lives. Um, other pe most people are not that they, they do push themselves a little bit, but they also forget a lot and they don't really reflect on how they learn. So then they, so they're lossy learners. So they're log N in terms of their number of years of learning as, as the more years go by, the, the rate of learning slows down. This is a very common trajectory, but if you, if you push yourself and if you store everything that you learned, then you become a linear learner, which is an infinite learner, right? A, a person who just learns a new thing every single year and materially improves in a linear fashion, right? Like the 10 years in, you're, you're twice as good as you were five years in. Uh, th that, is, that is actually very, very hard to do and something that's extremely commendable. But I also think there are people who treat their career with much more introspection and much more intention, such that they actually learn faster the more years they have. So they learn in, in, in the form of like an N squared um, 
capacity. And I think that is a very interesting algorithm for learning, right? Which, which means that you're not only learning the things you learned in that year, you're also looking back at everything you learned in the previous years and then abstracting from that some meta lessons that help you learn faster in future years, which is an interesting form of uh, learning. Um, yeah. So that's one. Th and so uh, th those are all just sort of self-learning, um, single player uh, personal learning. And then you add to that P, which is the number of people you learn with. So L times NP, uh, you know, L of N times P, which is like, I have a learning group of like five people. I learn as a function of the questions and the struggles and the lessons that my five friends who are learning with me have uh, in so far as I, I, I do. And you know, let's, let's fast forward all the way to the, the most extreme version of this. If you form a community around the thing that you're trying to learn and you actively engage with the community, you actually learn as a function of the square of the number of nodes in that community. This is very classic Metcalf's law uh, type of formulation. Um, and, um, and, and that is the, the sort of fastest possible way of learning uh, in terms of just understanding, like in, just, in terms of just like that pure theory of big L notation. I will caveat one thing, right? Learning includes doing. I think a lot of people will view the, the form of learning that I'm talking about as purely just reading stuff, but you can only get so much, get so far reading stuff, you also have to do stuff to learn some things that will, will, will stay out of your grasp because people don't write them down. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, this leads to another topic uh, that I'm interested to explore with you, which is some of that sounds exhausting. How do you maintain your personal energy and keep going? And I think of yeah. you as somebody who just has tremendous energy going all the time. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, it doesn't feel that accurate on my end. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I understand how, and I, I do feel like the internet amplifies things that way. So by by its very nature, by the, by the nature of a feed, of an algorithmic feed or a social network feed, you see the best of me and the worst of me. You don't see the average of me. Um, because it's just not something you comment about. If I burned out for one to two weeks, you don't really miss me. It's fine, right? Um, and and but I see I see all of me, and, and so like going living through it is is definitely the uh, a, a different feeling. Um, I, I think someone has said it better than I have, which is like you know don't compare your daily you know lifestyle with uh, someone else's highlight reels, which is essentially what you see other people online. That said. Uh, I will say I, I definitely try to push myself to do something on a regular basis. And I view that as a function of uh, life. Like, um, I feel very extremely privileged to be alive at this moment. Um, uh, you know, I speak English. I'm, I'm relatively healthy. Um, I, I don't worry about money all that much. Like, I'm in a very privileged position. And I need to take advantage of that um, as much as possible and, and, and try to give a little back, but I, I am primarily just like a, a life enjoyer and a life uh, promoter and maximizer. So you want to live life to the fullest, is what I'm saying. But my version of that is reading a lot of stuff and writing on the internet while other people, you know, I don't know, ride mountain bikes and stuff or something. <laughs> I'm not that interested in that. <laughs> I'm just doing things my way. Um, I will also say, I guess, um, I, I think you have to take an active interest in what is around you. Um, I, I do see a lot of very jaded developers out there who have, who think they have seen everything, who think that there's nothing new under the sun or everything is ruined by 
capitalism or corporations or ulterior motives in some, some shape or form. And yes, there is a lot of that, but you have to see some good in the world. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel like there are a lot of things, there, there's a lot that can be improved, you know, that um, the, 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 the current state of things is not good enough. And we will, um, and, and you can either get on board, you can, you can be an active participant or observer, or you can sit back and say, Hey, everything's a pendulum. Everything's a cycle. Uh, I've seen this all before and I'm completely jaded by it. And I don't think that's a healthy way to live life. So I just try not to. Yeah. Do you have any practices that you incorporate to, to help keep yourself moving forward or keep yourself coming back to the positive? Um, I think having positive friends is enough. <laughs> you are the average of, you know, the people around you. Obviously I have uh, you guys in my ear every week, every week. And, you know, you're such a uh, change log and, and JS party and, you know, and the rest of the crew are just uh, such sources of, of uh, techno optimism that is measured. That's, that's, you know, that isn't afraid to dive into the details. Um, I think that is super helpful. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I, I have now moved to San Francisco where there are a lot of AI optimist friends. Um, I, it's possible for optimism to get too far out of hand, but I think some amount is good. And you want to err on the side of too optimistic rather than err on the side of too pessimistic. Um, and then I guess the other practice is really for me, just like, again, like every single day or week, try to put out something that expresses some delight or joy or progress and, and your hope for the future. Um, hopefully with your participation, but sometimes not. Sometimes you're just a reporter, uh, like a citizen reporter, and that's okay. Um, and that's it. it we, we live in an amazing time. There's, there's progress going on in all dimensions of society. There's lots of bad stuff too. And we can call that out as, as much, but I much rather go for like an 80% positive, 20% negative than the other way around, which uh, has definitely consumed some people. I love that. All right. Moving to another topic. You mentioned put so putting something out every week and you are extremely consistent in putting things out. How? No, no, no. You guys are consistent. I'm not. <laughs> but anyway, let's let's keep going. Let's get, yeah, yeah. Well, I this this interview is about you, not me, right? I can share yeah, my yeah. tactics all day long, but today I want to learn yours. So, okay. what do you do to to sort of manage and improve your personal productivity? Ah, okay. So, I am. So, first of all, everyone asks about productivity systems, and this is where we talk about. The Zettelkastens, the like note-taking tools, Notion, Reflex, Obsidian, all that. I, I, I'm an Obsidian and Notion user, by the way. Um, and I don't think it matters if you understand the difference between productivity and leverage. Um, productivity is for people who don't have leverage, who need to fill every single hour of the day with, some, with, with something. And uh, that's good. You know, you want to fill every hour of your day with something. But also you feel constant stress. Um, you don't have slack to just wander and, and, and have serendipity come into your life. So sometimes not, uh, I, I actually challenge the question of like, should you be productive? Is being productive a, a, a possible goal? And I, I often find that a lot of us as knowledge workers, and I'm sure you feel this as well, we're not always productive, right? Um, and most of us hunt like lions rather than, than eat like cows. Um, we, we, we sprint for a little bit and then we burn out for a long time. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and that is the unfortunate nature of the way that knowledge work is done, uh, which is very hard to square with the way that we want to be paid. We want to be paid on a consistent basis. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so no, there, there's long times of, 
uh, lack of productivity. But I do think that, for example, deadlines are really good. So if you committed some to, to deliver something every week, then whatever you you have by the end of that, that time that you've given yourself, you have to ship. And that's just a rule that you don't let yourself second guess. Because if you let it slide for too long, then you then you essentially have stopped being the thing that you want it to be. Um, you're, you know, the, your identity is not the thing that you say you are, it's the thing that you do uh, consistently every day. Um, I think that's a James Clear type of paraphrase. The other thing that I'll say, so having that out of the way, I do have thoughts on productivity, right? Um, uh, and I haven't, I haven't even talked about leverage yet, right? Which is no, um, I, I'm excited to follow up on leverage, but yeah, let's stay okay. on the productivity let's, let's, let's train talk about as long as it goes, and then we'll yeah, do yeah. leverage. Exactly. So the main thing about productivity I offer to people is that you want to essentially debounce the things that come in asynchronously, and then the things that you can and batch up the things that you can do that you have to do synchronously. So what I call this is mise en place writing. Um, and I have a blog post about that as well, of course. Um, <laughs> um, and what that means is essentially I'm working on 50 different blog posts at a time rather than one. And I think a lot of people work on blog posts or ideas. I have, I have 50 different, different business ideas at once. Um, and I think people work on things in, in, in sequence, which is fine, but then the timing or inspiration or energy doesn't really match up at that time. And it's actually much better to let inspiration happen, to let preparation go on in the background. Um, and then when the time is right, be abnormally ready because you've been working on this in the background for years. Um, and that, that literally, I have blog posts that I, that I will ship sometime this year that I've been working on for two to three years because I just had them baking in the background. Um, anytime, and, and, and this fundamentally respects the, the nature of inspiration, that it comes randomly and it comes in the shower, it comes when you don't want it to, when it comes when you're talking to someone. And it's, that's very different from when you're sitting down to write uh, or you're, when you're working on uh, an idea. And um, so you, you need to establish a buffer, you need to multitask it or you need to uh, multiplex it. And I, th I think that is a, that's a very interesting way to in increase your total band bandwidth, essentially. Um, cool, uh, anything else on the productivity front? I wanna follow up on that a little bit. How do you keep those different threads present for yourself? Cause I, I also, have this type of, I have many, many different things in progress, but sometimes yeah. I find I lose track of them. Yeah, I think that's okay. You have to you just fundamentally have to be okay with the fact that for just mental health reasons, you are not going to be able to do everything that you want to do. And then the the further evolution of that is you're not gonna be able, be able to do everything that you commit to do. Therefore, you have to start saying no to more things, even though you really, really, really want to do them, or you just really like working with the person, you really love the opportunity, um, but it just doesn't fit. You, you're gonna have to give up something. Um, and and that thing is not as important. Uh, you know, this thing is not as important as, as that more important thing. So so you just have to force yourself to stack and prioritize that. Uh, and, and definitely um, emphasize sustainability over all else, right? You can work yourself to the bone, but if you burn out, then you've kind of lost that game. Uh, whereas, yeah, I think you'll, you'll be much happier if you, if you can work at a sustainable pace. Well, and that highlights that sort of stack ranking brings us, I think, naturally to this concept of leverage. And Oh, yeah. Give, uh, I'll, I'll, patch, I'll patch one more thing, sorry. Um, which is, I love having this concept of a small area of concern. I think this is a Stephen Covey concept. So there's a circle of influence and circle of concern. Um, 
And people have a very high anxiety when their circle of concern, the things they are concerned about and thinking about and talking about constantly and reading about and caring about is far exceeding their ability to influence them, to control them. Um, so if you're constantly worried about what's going on in political races, in like geopolitical debates or like law or social issues, um, yes, all those things are important, but uh, if they crowd out your personal life and, and personal well-being, uh, then they are bad for you. Uh, and you need to be able to know how to balance them. Uh, and so um, how, what that translates to for me is having a small interest area, right? Like um, I, for example, in my in my investing, which I've, I've done a few uh, investments in startups, I only focus on developer tooling now. And I only focus on people who have who are referred to from my existing network. Um, I don't advertise myself as an, as an investor because that expands my circle of concern. And I don't have time for those those people. Um, because I want to make time for the people that are in my network that I that I know much better. Um, and so it's like little trade-offs like that. You know, I, I have decided, for example, that I don't care about React anymore. Therefore, I just stay out of all debates. And, and that has freed up a lot of my bandwidth compared to me five years ago. And and, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, I think, I think deciding what strategically to care about and then actively walking away from things that, that you don't no longer care about is an exercise that needs to be done uh, on a regular basis to prune your attention. I love that. All right, leverage. Let's talk yeah. about leverage. How do you think about it? What is it when it comes to something like personal leverage? And how do you approach identifying and systematically increasing your leverage? So productivity, if you kind of view this like as mathematical equations, uh, productivity is output over time, whereas the relevant equation for leverage would be impact over effort. And you want to maximize impacts uh, while minimizing effort. But I actually don't even think about minimizing effort. You want to, you, let's say you have a fixed amount of effort budget and you do want to have high effort. And people love, there's a lot of high leverage people or people who seek leverage by seeking to put in the minimal amount of effort. And I think that's the wrong way to think about these things. It causes a lot of 80-20 thinking where there's a bunch of ideas, idea guys, right, who walk around and saying like, oh, I have an idea for this. And, you know, like once I've stated the idea, the rest of it is obvious. You can do the rest, right? But like you, you can't get anywhere half-assing it because you don't finish anything and therefore you don't ship and you don't, you know, it's, it's not in a usable state. Um, so, so I definitely, I definitely don't talk, don't talk about minimizing effort, but I, I do think you want to maximize your impact. And so leverage for me is essentially the, the best metric of it is how much can you get done or how much value can you provide to others in your sleep? Cause sleeping is like literally when you're not around. And so part of that will be, Writing, writing is writing is very high leverage, but writing is not the only way you can do that, right? You can also pro, you can also write software, and I think so, uh, software is one of the most highest form, highest leverage form of labor that is possible that is known to humanity, and I think that's why software engineers are worth a lot, especially if you have self healing systems that, uh, uh, you know that 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 run thousands and thousands of machines uh, at the same time, uh, you know, and that's that's why Kubernetes is valuable. Or if you write one piece of software that is deployable on all sorts of browsers and all, all sorts of devices like a React, um, all those things are, are very high leverage activities, which, are, which I highly encourage. Hiring other people is also a form of leverage that's kind of people leverage. And then um, borrowing money is a form of leverage. That's, that's the classical financial uh, definition of leverage. By the way, there's two kinds of 
financial leverage. One is operational leverage and one is financial uh, capital leverage, um, which uh, I highly encourage people to, to learn about if they're interested in scaling businesses, but we don't have to go specifically there. The reason that code and content have abnormal power in terms of leverage compared to the other two types of leverage that I mentioned, which is uh, people leverage and uh, money leverage, is that code and content are permissionless. I don't need your permission to write my own code that is valuable. I don't need your permission to write my own content that someone else finds valuable. I do need your permission to hire you. I do need your permission to borrow your money or take your investments. And so being permissionless gives you autonomy uh, and full control, especially if I do that with uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people such that I'm not captive to any one particular audience. In effect, I'm uncancelable, um, and any one person churning away from me uh, completely doesn't affect me. That is true power and leverage and wealth, to be honest. Yeah, I like that. Okay, cool. So you mentioned finance a little bit, and I think you have this somewhat unique background in that you came from finance yeah. into tech. Are there things from that background that you feel have helped you in tech? And that are valuable to share for folks? A little bit. So I talked a little bit about tech strategy. What makes, and I think developers don't under, don't uh, introspect on this nearly enough as it is important to their careers. What makes one line of code or one chunk of code more valuable than another chunk of code, right? You only have, you know, so many lines of code in your, in your fingers you obviously want to direct them towards the most valuable use. And it's not actually, it only has very little to do with how you write that, that code. Um, it's more about the context in which that code operates in. Uh, and so I think, I think that uh, I definitely think about that a lot. I think about my choice of frameworks or libraries or languages as an investment. And so I, I would view it as I would sort of diligence it as an investment and think about the macro trends that are driving this and the fundamental bottom-up reasons why this will fundamentally persist over time. Um, and I have an investor lens to this, but I definitely don't want people to think too highly of this. I, I think this is an analogy and not a science um, because I've made plenty of mistakes myself and the frequency at which we can make these decisions are nowhere like we can in, in, in finance, right? Like in finance, I can trade in and out of a stock within the same day. In, in tech, if I make a bet on a framework, I'm probably sticking with that for three to five years, um, you know, and, and that's a relatively weighty bet. And I want to, to be invested longer than that. Um, I do also think that having a sense of what code is valuable and what is not, eludes a lot of otherwise extremely smart people. I have a lot of friends who are extremely, extremely smart, way smarter than I am, who are very caught up in type systems. Um, no value whatsoever. <laughs> you know, um, I don't care. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, yes, I understand like type theory is, you know, it, it eliminates entire classes of problems. I understand that there's absolutely in the history of business of technology, no evidence whatsoever that that has any value at all. To, to any business whatsoever. Um, so you like understanding like what drives value and like what people really want out of out of you, which is not necessarily what you want, but but it just caters to the base desires of other people and feel, giving them what they want, um, I think is a, is a fundamentally useful discipline. And, and, and I think that is 
something that you took from investing, right? You can talk about, you can talk a big game about your mission of the company, right? But ultimately, if you're selling, uh, you know, you can talk a big game about elevating the human consciousness, right? But ultimately, if your day-to-day -day job is you're renting out office space, then WeWork is not that valuable. It's not a tech company. It's not elevating human consciousness. It's just renting office space. <laughs> um, and um, I, I think a, a lot of people could could be more practical in, in the way that they, they view tech businesses and, and what they choose to work on. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point around how do you value different things in code? Right. And where things have internal value, value only to developers or value to the business in different forms or value to the end customers. If someone is trying to wrap their head around that, where would you recommend they start? Um, well, I have accumulated a bunch of resources in my book. Uh, I, again, I'm not like trying to plug my book, but like literally that's the, that's the primary place. Uh, I have a few free chapters on intro to business strategy, which I highly recommend everybody reads because that, that has accumulated my sense of thinking. Um, and you want to get a sense of just a mental hierarchy of like how much time do people put into something versus how much financial reward they've gotten out of it. Does that align? Does it make sense? Does anything break your mental barrier? Sometimes there are exceptions, but a lot of the times you can draw rough rules um, that separate things from another. So I'll just give one example. Um, there's, a, there's a very traditional progression which goes, you sell your hours for dollars, right? And then you and then you start buying hours with dollars, and then you start buying dollars with dollars, or you start making dollars with dollars, uh, and that's a very simple three-tier progression from being an agency or a full-time employee towards being an employer towards being an investor, um, and increasing amounts of leverage at each point in time. Um, but that's one that's that's one very simple non-developer focused. Uh, version of this. A, a developer-focused version of this would be, hey, where are the consistent business models that have worked out time and time again because they have some gravity to them? Um, what, you know, one of the very interesting ways that people comment uh, about AWS's business model is, yes, they are sort of the Walmart of cloud. They, <laughs> they only, the only lower prices, they never raise them. But the dirty secret of AWS is that they have the Hotel California rule to data, right? You can check in data, but then they'll charge you a pretty penny to get it out of AWS. Um, and this is what uh, Bandwidth Alliance and Cloudflare are rallying against because obviously AWS being the, the 800 pound gorilla, they, they want to uh, serve as the countervailing force to that. Um, but I think it, it is fundamentally true that whoever has the data has the financial power, like money follows data. And if the closer you are to data, the more data lives with you and not with others, the more you're the system of record for your business on any, any particular thing. So for example, Slack is a system of record for internal communication. GitHub is a system of record for code. Stripe is the system of record for transactions. Uh, Zenefits or Gusto or Rippling with system of record for employees. Anywhere you, have, you are a database or your custom database of some sort, uh, Datadog, you know, huge, huge business system of record for observability or monitoring. Anywhere you, you are a database, the money follows there. It just is. Snowflake, the largest IPO, te tech IPO in the last 10 years, obviously a data warehouse, right? Like, <laughs> um, uh, and, and I think just like having those intuitions and just making those observations again and again and again just trains your intuition for like, oh, like this is valuable code and this other stuff is not. And I think um, that will help you in your career choices, that'll help you... Uh, for, spend your time wisely and then also hopefully make some money.
Yeah. Well, and that's another way towards thinking about leverage, right? You're thinking about leveraging the code that you write. Um, yes. I, I will say, like, I think there's one form of leverage which does not have economic benefit to most people that create it, but has tremendous power. And, and honestly, it's, it's very fulfilling. And that is standards design. Because the for inter interfaces and the formats of code between code, the, the way that the, the way that data you know passes from one place to the next, that is a standard or or format, whatever you call it, and a well designed standard and format will will outlive any code that you write. Any one of them. I don't care what I don't care what you know. Like um, we don't really care what the implementation detail of the first browsers were, but HTML lists us to this day. It, it'll probably outlive us. Um, and and that, those standards, which are well designed, live on. And I think that the people, the developers, especially who put a lot of heart and soul and effort into designing standards, uh, should be rewarded. Uh, and they, they never will be because uh, the the point of a good standard is that it is open, that everyone can use it. Yeah, that's a great point. Are there other areas of leverage that you think about? So we've talked a lot about you know, leveraging money, leveraging. Um, other people leveraging the type of work that you do, you know, writing and yeah, code, code and, and content. Yeah. Code and content. Um, other types of leverage that you have used or thought about? Well, so I think that being pointy is more valuable than being broad. And that's a form of leverage because uh, general, general capability is not something you can trade with, with someone else. But being a point domain, point solution, a domain specialist, you, something you can trade with another domain specialist. Um, and in a barter economy of skills and contacts and tips and uh, help, that is much more useful, right? So I found that um, I, I'm capable of many things. I, I, I'm known for many things. But the, the one thing that everybody comes to me for is developer relations advice, because I, I happen to write one blog post that went viral and, and you know, it's, now regarded the, the 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 canonical posts for how you do measurements for developer relations, and that's okay, you know. But like, I, uh, and you want to you want to resist being put in a box because you're you're more than that. You you contain multitudes, but people want to put you in a box, so you might as well help them. <laughs> and that is a form of leverage. Uh, the way I put it is in, in my book is you might as well put them in a in a high value, pretty glittering box next to the checkout, together with uh, other attractive boxes that. Uh, you want to be associated with. Yeah. So did you choose your box or did it choose you? No, it cho definitely chose me. Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely didn't set out to this. I, I even got the job by accident, right? Like when I interviewed at Netlify, I was, I was supposed to be a solutions engineer and I failed that interview. And they, But they liked me enough that they were like, what, what about this other role that we have open? And I was like, sure, what is developer advocate? Uh, and then I took that role and you know, I did well. So that's an interesting thing to discuss. How did you discover what the right box for you was? In this case, it sounds like maybe it was a viral blog post, but how would one discover, okay, I want to be pointy. What's the right, you know, beautiful glittery box for me? Yeah. Um, I do think like it's, it's the ever persistent question of what is the intersection of what you love and what the world values, right? Because you can't have one or the other with the exclusion of the other. And um, the, you know, the, the sort of 
120 IQ form of this is Ikigai, which I'm sure you, you know about, which is that intersection of four circles. What you love, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. Um, so that's the Ikigai four circle meme. The reason I make fun of it slightly is because what you love eventually will be what you're good at. So that circle collapses. And then what the world needs and what is uh, will eventually be what you can pay for. So that circle also collapses. Um, the the function of the internet and the long tail economy is that those two those two things do collapse over time. So ultimately, it's just demand and supply, right? Like this is just so many words to just say like, hey, what do you want to do with your life? Um, and then okay, which of that bucket is is something that I actually want out of you? And if you can just figure that, then then it's a it's a valuable thing. Um, I do think that you have to take a few shots on goal. Like uh, you have to take a, a leap of faith in yourself sometimes and just put yourself out there as like, this is the identity I have for a few years. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, I can pivot and no shame because everyone is is on their own journey and no one's uh, judging you uh, too much for that. So um, I think you can try on a few identities. I think maybe you get like three to five shots at like defining what that bucket is, but uh, it, it is extremely valuable to be a domain expert. Uh, because actually, when you are viewed as a domain expert, by the time you're viewed there, you're actually past that certain point in time where you've seen how fractal this thing goes, and you realize that there's always more depths to this. Uh, and, and you can get even more of an expert, um, the, the more you are an expert. So I don't know if that helps at all. But <laughs> that's my, no, I like that's it. my little thinking. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm curious, to explore a little bit more, you talked about deliberately trying on an identity, which is something that I think you know, I have definitely thought about, like, what is my persona for this or what is that? But I feel like that is actually a pretty unusual thing to think about identity as something that you are exploring and choosing and maybe throwing away. So how do you how do you approach that? I think you can incubate identities multiple identities at a time. Um, you have a main one, and then you have maybe like three to four side things that you're trying on. And I don't, I definitely am not that conscious about it. Uh, I will say you are what you do, and you just choose to do more of um, of, the, of the identity that you are trying on. And eventually one day you wake yourself, you, you wake up one day and you realize you've done that, you know, for 10 years in a row, and you've done it more than anyone else that you know. And you, yeah, you've earned it. You've, you've, you've become the thing that you want it to be. But you don't get there by just saying you want to do it. And you, just, you have to actually just do the thing. Um, and so I, I definitely am very influenced by James Clear's perspective of this, which is um, the only way to change your identity is to consistently do it every single day. Uh, and, and every action towards that identity is a vote for the kind of person that you want to become. Um, so I, I, that is just, I think, fundamentally correct. Love it. Okay, so your DevRel identity, which may may or may not be the identity you're you're mainlining right now, but um, not at all, yeah, not at all. Um, that one I think is is potentially an interesting one to explore just a little bit more if if we can, because it gets to a different way of thinking and a way of thinking that's focused on communication, and whether that be through writing or speaking, or or these other different pieces. So. Um, do you, I'm curious if you have tactics for how you think about, we talked about writing, but let's, let's maybe talk about speaking. Like I'm going to make a presentation. How do you go about getting ready for that? Are there ways <laughs> that you, you know, do structure that 
what do you do when you're on stage? Yeah. So there's, there's what you should do. And then there's what I do. Uh, <laughs> so what you, what you should do is you should do a lot of uh, research and testing and, and trial runs. Um, Hillel Wayne, I think it's either Hillel Wayne or uh, the um, RxJS guy, Andre uh, Stoltz, who says essentially your budget for preparing a talk should be the amount of human hours that are going to be live in that audience, right? So if you have like 400 people watching you for half an hour, you should spend 200 hours working your talk. For a, and that will be an extremely good talk, right? That, that, that will be worth the time that is being invested in you. Uh, most of us do not do that, obviously. <laughs> that is a huge commitment. Um, I do think maybe, you know, there's some amount of ratio that you can do, and then there's some, some amount of recycling you can do, right? A talk isn't a, a project to be done, ideally. It, it is actually a summation or the, or the capstone of work that you were already doing without the talk in mind, right? It is, it is so much more, it's so much better when you're just presenting the thing that you worked on for five years. And you're like, hey, guys, like, I know everything there is to know about this because I just spent the five, past five years working about it. And it doesn't matter if I did any prep at all because anything I say will be revelatory because you have not spent five years on this. <laughs> and, and that's a great talk. You, you've, seen a, you've seen a few of those talks, but they're usually language creators, framework authors, you know, the people who've just invested a significant amount of time. And you, and you can see the difference between those talks and the talks where people have not invested a significant amount of time. And they have to make up for it with like extra prep, right? Like their, their slides have to be beautifully designed. Um, they have to tell really engaging stories. They have to like produce a nice demo. Um, and you still don't remember them 10 years later because they, they just didn't register in terms of the, 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 the impact and effort. Um, for me as well, um, personally, I care about a mission and a message, right? Like what is the take home at the end of the day? Um, I think it's a very common saying that people don't remember what you said, they remember how you made them feel. Um, for developers, I think we have a little bit more attention span than that. Like they, they do remember what you did in, in the demo or, or the talk, but you do have to make it concise enough, right? I think, um, um, I, I think definitely a lot of developers, when they do talks for the first time or, or even when they've done it a lot of times, they, they, they focus on like the very mechanical, like, here is how to integrate X with Y using framework A and B, and then, you know, blah, blah, end of story. We're very happy, right? Um, and you see a million of those talks, they could be blog posts, the complete waste of time is talks. And I think for talks, it's, it's much more about like the storytelling and the message that you want to deliver because you're giving in this full force, like visual plus voice, plus like all the context of like people applauding and, and like how much work it took you to get up to the stage. And yes, this is like one of maybe five opportunities in the entire year that you could have presented this and you chose this one. Um, for all those reasons, um, it is a special moment in, in time. Um, and you want to give it a, the, 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 the experience that it deserves. Um, and so I try to engineer for that. I do have tactical recommendations around designing the emotional valence of a talk. You want to start strong, end strong, and then have a high point that you design for and you set up long before, um, long before you do it. Uh, so for example, uh, my, my best known talk is the one where I clone React in, uh, in uh, something like 30, 30 lines of code. Um, and I, I, I give a setting for that talk um, and, I, and I, I leave something in a setting that I'm going to call back to at the ending, but I also have a high point in the middle that I make sure I give enough emotional weight and build up so that people can applaud. And people actually more remember that they applaud more than 
like that yeah the particular thing but like if you don't engineer that right then you kind of waste that moment and you've just created an unmemorable talk so yeah I, I don't know if that helps there's that's a, that's a mix of tactics and strategy but um, I do have a bunch of well uh, sort of uh, definitional talks, like game-changing talks that I, that I maintain. Uh, it's at my developer relations site, uh, <laughs> dx.tips. As much as I've said as I've said that I don't want to be the guy, uh, once I was like, okay, like people would just want this out of me, you know, I, I indulge them a little bit. So uh, it's dx.tips slash YouTubes or dx.tips slash pitches, actually. So these are the best pitches and demos of all time. And uh, these are the ones that are likely to stick around. And uh, if you want to consciously design your speaking career to, towards that, I, I do think it's a worthwhile effort. Awesome. Well, we've covered a lot of different topics and a lot of ground. Is there anything in your mind that we haven't covered that you think would be useful to talk through? Okay. Um, I mean, I, let's, let's discuss the elephant in the room, which is the impact of AI and the opportunity of AI. Um, I think there's a lot of re good reason to be wary of it based on the sheer amount of hype and the legal issues, potential ethical issues, the job replacement issues, all of that is, is valid and, and worth discussing. Um, and I've decided to essentially steamroll over all of it and just kind of go into, go into it full force. And I think um, the main message I have for people is that there is a ton of opportunity and you are not too old to get into this because it is still such an immature field. Again, I compare myself to people in theoretical physics or math or like philosophy or linguistics, like all of which are centuries older than computer science. Um, many of the jobs that we have today did not exist 10 years ago. So we, why are we so precious about them and being worried that there will not be no more jobs for us 10 years from now? Um, I don't care if my current job doesn't exist ten years, uh, you know, in ten years from now, because there will be new ones coming. Because the the desires of humans are um, cannot be fulfilled. Like we'll always move the bar once something is commonplace and normal, uh, and we'll want the next thing and the next thing. Uh, we, it, you always want something faster, cheaper, better, freer, customizabler whatever that is. And I think uh, that will never end. Like human desires are just in a bottomless pit of want um, and technology is the way that we're, we're fulfilling that uh, hopefully along the way we, we lift people out of poverty and solve <laughs> solve global warming and all that good stuff um, but the fun the, the best way we know to uh, to organize human potential and co collaborative effort towards that is by people voting and people voting with their money um, so I think I don't know that, that's that's my long-winded way of saying like uh, I, I think uh, AI, you know, like I'm embracing AI because it is a technological shift. Um, it is a general purpose technology. Um, and that is it, by the way, look at, look that up in Wikipedia. There are like fire is a general purpose technology, the wheel, uh, personal computing, smartphones are general purpose technologies. There are categories of technologies that are just categorically different than your next JavaScript framework that you should pay more attention to and align accordingly when the time comes. And this is one of them. All right, that's it for this human skills interview. If you enjoyed it, please consider liking this video and subscribing to this channel. You can also subscribe to the human skills newsletter, which there's a link to right down below to get notified of interviews like this as they come out. Take care y'all. This is K-Ball signing out.